Welcome to Technology Tandems. We get leaders together to discuss the important tech of today and the implications for tomorrow. Our discussions are fun, lighthearted, and frankly opinionated. But hopefully it gives you a sense of what matters, what to pay attention to, and what to ignore. Joining me today is Kevin Erickson. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you for having me again. And Jason Goth joining us from some beautiful lake. How are you, Jason? Yeah, I hope this remote recording platform works because I'm going to start spending my Fridays out here when we record this. As we enter fishing season, I suspect you're not wrong. Today, I want to talk to you a little bit about bears and who is the biggest bear. That is to say, cybersecurity. Really, what we're seeing in the marketplace today is, I don't know, startling, concerning, interesting, if nothing else. 93% of cybersecurity experts and 86% of business leaders believe a geopolitical instability is likely to lead to catastrophic cyber attack in the next two years. Catastrophic cyber attack two years away, Jason Goth, like, really? Is this a thing? What's going on? Maybe, yeah, but it could be sooner than that for your specific business. And what I mean by that is I tend to separate out these, you know, large cyber attacks on critical infrastructure, power grid, those type things, networks, from just a cyber attack on your company, ransomware, whatever. You don't need one of those really large events for someone to, you know, take try to take control over your, uh, you know, your local systems. And I'd be more worried about the latter than the former, although it can have a big impact, some kind of global cyber attack on on massive infrastructure, but that affects everyone, right? And in a lot of cases, those are somewhat force majeure events, whereas the attack on your local firm may not, that may just affect you. And those are, to me, much more likely to happen sooner than two years to a lot of people than, you know, than some larger global event. So your point is it's not so much these balloons or things floating around the world these days. It's actually a bit more targeted that the organization should be concerned with. Is there like the Sony type attacks or are these more random ransomware, what do they call them? Um, code, Cody kitties or something like this. Is that right? Script kitties. Where basically kids, script kitties, there it is. Script kitties, where they're just grabbing scripts offline and running them against whoever might have a vulnerability. Like, is that is that what you're getting at? There's sort of a difference in those two domains? Yeah, and I think they're both risks, right? They have a little bit different mitigations to them, right? In, in the first, like you really want to harden your own borders, your own front door, make sure all your windows are locked and, and those type things which again, we'll get into the economics or or the business case for that with Kevin here in a second. But, you know, the other is really around, you know, the global event is more around like disaster recovery and business continuity planning. Like if there is something that takes down all of the, you know, the electrical grid in the Northeast and you're running in, you know, data center in the Northeast, do you have some way to fail back to the West coast or something like that, or to another country? Those things are big ticket investments. Right. And and I'm not saying they shouldn't be done, but for a season where money is tight, that may be, you know, a luxury that a lot of companies can't afford. Whereas I think locking some of your own doors and windows, right, is something that is a little bit easier, more affordable. It's I think it's still gonna be challenging to get some of those things approved, as as you point out, Vincent, like it's hard to it's hard to explain the ROI on an event that is a prevention, right? It's like having 
you know, insurance. Like, well, I didn't get in a wreck, so why did I spend that money? Jason, I think before we get into some of the reasons w- how a company may respond, I am curious from your perspective on just why why now? Why are we seeing greater attacks? Why even the quote of like the next two years? What's potentially changed that's make it, made this time more vulnerable, people more considering this, and just give us a, the business guy at this call or a podcast a, a chance to understand kind of what you're seeing from a tech perspective? Well, it's a great question. I think, one, the tools – to do those kind of attacks have increased in a sophistication and effectiveness, but also ease of use, right? You know, it doesn't take, you know, a PhD student from MIT to go download and, you know, run a, a ransomware attack against, against someone. Two is there's been a massive push as we've talked about over the last two years, rush on, into the digital world due to COVID and other things where people have, you know, really invested in a lot of that, but they may not have invested in the appropriate security around those things in the rush to get there. You know, I think that is, is definitely the case. And then finally, I know you guys will think this is just a way, another way for me to complain about Bitcoin, but I do think that it's had an effect. Not that it, it isn't traceable and technically should have had an impact on it. But I think for a lot of these, folks that are, you know, able to get some of these scripts, they view that as a way to, you know, get paid without being caught, right? Again, I don't know that that's true, but uh, at least that's the perception. And if the perception exists and the tools exist, people are going to go do it. That's really, really good and helpful. And message. other things that you think about just around what's the percentage of the world's cloud traffic that's held by three or four providers. You have great consolidation of, just companies that um, not that it makes it easier to get through. In some ways, that can provide greater security. In some ways, I just have to get through the goalie through a couple different ways to be able to do that. But it is interesting just to think about that. Probably also a little bit more time on people's hands, right? And, and thinking about how do people work through that. And then, you know, you've, you've talked a little bit, Jason, just a, around or maybe back to balloons. You know, what is the geopolitical threat of this, and how much activity is happening from there that maybe was always occurring, but now it seems to be even a bigger part of how we engage from both a, a geopolitical country perspective and also from a multinational corporation perspective. Hey, can I, I want to dig into that comment you just made real quick uh, about the cloud providers, because I think oftentimes business leaders will think, well, if we move to the cloud, we're more susceptible to, to some type of cybersecurity event. I think that's actually backwards, right? The, the cloud has a very sophisticated security team all the the major vendors do and very sophisticated tools now do people always set them up correctly and configure them correctly no but uh that that can be easily addressed whereas i think the the challenge is probably more acute for people who are not using the cloud who are are using their own infrastructure because my my assertion there is like when was the last time you invested in upgrading firewalls or you know, building some type of AI to, to look at traffic, you know, those things that the cloud providers have that, that you may not. And so I'd, I'd be much more worried if I were a CIO, if I had things in my own data centers than if I had them in the cloud, not to suggest that you don't need to also take appropriate precautions in the cloud, but um, those, those exist there. They may not exist in someone's, uh, you know, homegrown infrastructure. 
Yeah, well, uh, and what I love about even the the three different disciplines that we bring, that makes sense from a technical perspective. And I would agree with you around that. I also think the where I was going, I think is a bit more of a, we'll take a Twitter size problem. It's more groupthink. You have corporations that are acting a certain way. They're bringing a certain philosophy. They don't know what's vulnerable, what's not, because they have such a, a common ideology. That's where my concern from a strategy perspective is actually more there than it is around the the switches and the buttons and the dials or whatever else that from a technology perspective that can be worked through, you know, work through different ways. And so, yeah, it, it's, it also just speaks to a bit of a problem here where there is different ways to consider and different pros and cons of how you approach it. And, uh, it's not simply just about the tech, the strategy, or ultimately the data. Well, I think the other thing from a technology standpoint is that the cloud providers, the benefit is really, they provide this nice homogenous infrastructure on which to build. That also leads me to believe that if you were able to get access to said systems, you already know what you're looking for and you know the format of it. I don't have to know every SQL language. I just have to know how to read S3 buckets if you're in AWS because everybody writes all their data to S3. I don't need to worry about some bespoke small vendor. I have exactly one. And I don't know, Jason, maybe, maybe that's not the right way to think about it. You tell me, I guess. You're still used to doing flying planes with vacuum tubes, right? I mean, let's, <laughs> yeah, let's see how we're going to work through this. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, like, look, you have that you have that little mainframe that you play on all the time. If somebody gave me access to a mainframe, I wouldn't know how to do anything. Yeah. You'd be like, hey, there's there's millions of credit card numbers on here, and I wouldn't. I w- it would take me weeks to figure out even how to access those things. If you give it to me in S3, it'll take me two minutes, and it'll be on my laptop. You well, know, there's, just, there's more familiarity with those common infrastructure cloud providers for the average person. And that's, I think, partly why you see all these script kitties showing up because one script can be written and be applicable to a huge number of companies. And to your point, while I probably am not going to be able to infiltrate AWS at some system level, I know how those things are default configured. I know default admin passwords. This was a big hack way back in the day, right? People forget to change root level accounts that all had the same password on vendors, et cetera. And so my guess is, in some sense, the consolidation has made it easier on the margin. Now, again, sophisticated enterprise customer, probably not. They're going to be aware of these things. They're going to do it. And I do think that the system level of those clouds is going to be way better than most companies could implement on their own. But I could be totally wrong. You can tell me I'm wrong, Jason. It's okay. Wouldn't be the first time. No, I think that's exactly right. I don't think there's a danger of a wide-scale S3 level. We're breaking into S3 and Amazon, right? That would be... You know, Amazon spending billions of dollars probably securing that. But each individual customers are, are putting buckets out there, probably many of them using the default configs, which then does create a very large attack surface, not on S3 itself, but on your particular you know, bucket or usage of the platform. And that's where I think, you know, getting someone that can look at and, and validate you're following those best practices would, would be really helpful. That's also what I mean by like, there are probably a bunch of people when they rushed out to start using, doing things and scaling things out online, you know, during the pandemic, those are probably the people that are most are at most risk, I would say, of not having followed those again, you know, if you're Twitter, you've been using this for 10 years, you've had like hardened or Netflix or anyone else that you know cloud-based platform, you've hardened that down. It's the people that have gone quickly out and like just adopted it over the last couple of years. Like that's where I would be more concerned. Like we, you know, let's let's make sure that we are locking all the doors and wind all the you know S three counts with lots of locks. Let's make sure we've locked them all. Yeah, that's really good. I want to go back to that other category, the the balloon category. These sort of nation state sponsored attacks, real quick. 
the flip of that is if I'm, you know, some, some rogue state, let's say, and I have sort of nationally sponsored cyber attack activity taking place, it seems to me that I would be targeting the raw S3. I would be targeting, you know, the three cloud providers constantly with an incredible amount of talent and money and resources being thrown at it. Because if I could, if I could penetrate one of those, I'd have access to everything that I could possibly want from an IP perspective, from a espionage perspective, so on and so forth. And we've seen some of the, you know, back in the day when Snowden did all that release, we saw that our the U.S. government was doing some of this, attacking these cloud providers, either technically or through, you know, backdoor legal methods, I suppose. Is that is that a concern that anybody should be worried about? Is that, is that falling in the category of like, look, as a company, if that's happening, like you're, you're just, there's nothing to be done. Well, I'd say, you know, Amazon... Microsoft, Google are bigger than many nation states, right? And so they're going to be spending nation state level dollars on securing those things. Where I think I would be more worried is around, you know, we saw the colonial pipeline, right? For example, ransomware attack, but you know, a lot of regional and maybe even more national sized utilities are, I think at much bigger risk. Does a regional telecommunication provider that, you know, provides internet access for, you know, a million people in 10 states, for example, have the budget to spend on, on securing their, their network infrastructure like a Google would, right? The answer is probably not, right? And so, you know, those are the ones that I would think would be more uh, at risk than, than the cloud providers. Got it. And, and this is like the Ukraine attack, when in the first days of that, the first hours of that, actually, most of their infrastructure was shut down via cyber activity from a pretty obvious player, but I guess maybe not definitively, so I won't say it. But it seems like from a pretty obvious player in that case where they lost internet, they lost connectivity to, to you know all of their news networks, all of their internal military communications, et cetera. Um, so in those cases, I guess, if, you're, if your infrastructure, that's probably solved through legislation, I assume. I mean, I think regulators are going to have to do something about that at some point. Does that seem right to both of you? And if you're not, then this falls into the other category you were talking more about, Jason. Well, I, it's funny. I'm, I'm I'm thinking now about uh, not only what happened in the Ukraine or what the vulnerabilities are, and we can get back to how do companies provide for it. But it's interesting around how do municipalities provide for it. In Dallas, you know, we recently shut down for three and a half days for ice. And you think about what would happen if you were to shut down a water plant or, or, or different elements of that, and what does that look like in terms of you know, now we're not even going after again, companies to pay for that, but you're going back to people that are you know, getting hit up for what they feel are their basic human rights. And so that's a part where it's a little bit scary because I'm, I'm, I'm much more confident that the average company has got an idea what they want to do than I am concerned about the local DMV having known what they want to do in terms of, of how they would handle a security attack. Well, I mean, case in point, like even that that institution in the in the federal government that was hacked that had all of the security clearance documents, et cetera, that database was just not well secured and yeah. Now gone, right? So I think what's it's interesting around maybe to take it, and I'm, I'm going to ignore your question for a second, Vincent, but uh, but but I think it is, I think what it could be interesting around really, what do you start to do now back as companies, right? Most of our listeners are, are working for companies. How do they think about these different threats? How do they think about it in terms of the investments they need to make? How do they think about in terms of the time that we're in, both from an economic perspective, from a regulatory perspective, from just general uncertainty? So, you know, how, you know, how you 
wrestle through those pros and cons, the ROI of that. I mean, I think maybe we can start that thread by going back to our resident fishermen and talk about where do we think the technology, you know, some of the vulnerabilities would be that would be areas that most companies today are probably at risk of either running uh, ancient or old technology or vulnerable technology. And how would you even start to think about that from a CTO and a CIO perspective? Yeah, that's a good question, Kevin. You know, I think the where they they exist, you know, that's a difficult question to answer because they probably exist in a lot of places, right? From old software that has not been patched to maybe misconfigurations in infrastructure, cloud or on-premise. There's probably endless number of, of avenues. And so where we would tend to, to start and tell people to start is with an assessment of like what are the systems and, and what risks do they provide and what would it cost to fix it, right? And then you can kind of make a risk-based decision. Not every system has the same impact on a business. So usually when we look at, at these things, we start with kind of a business impact assessment of like, well, which applications, which functions, you know, which platforms or, or underlying technologies are most critical and what risk do they have? You know, when budgets are being fought for, we can focus on some of those high impact, you know, low cost, low hanging fruit kind of items. Uh, that's where I would start. But like what those are for each individual company, like there's probably, you know, in a in hundred companies, that's probably just a hundred different answers. Well, yeah, I'm curious. We've talked a bit about, you know, the economic headwind that we're facing at the moment and how do what do you prioritize generally? And I think the advice that we we prescribed was, you know, you need to really focus on retrenching and focusing on the core business. Uh, maybe have a little bit of portfolio effect still going on with some bets, but really calling a lot of your bets down to just the core ones. I'm curious, like, how do you think about this as on that list of how are you going to prioritize paying off this tech debt? How are you going to prioritize, you know, even, even doing the assessment to figure out where my holes are? And then is there any kind of liability or additional risk that you're incurring by then uncovering an issue that you then can't afford to address immediately. Like, how do you balance those things, Kevin? We'll come back to that last one because it's a really interesting one. It's like, should I, I don't want to actually know what's in the cupboard, so I won't look is an interesting defense. And I'm not certain uh, how much uh, that will get you away from just a litigious in the regulatory environment that we're in today. So I think that is an even bigger risk that has been in before. You know, a negligence is no longer a really a, an opportunity for you. But if we, look, if we go take a step back and look at, uh, where we're come from and where we're going. So we're coming from a season for many technology companies you know, of hyper growth. And uh, we're working through that the last couple of years, everything from how do you expand products, talent, everything else, you know, shifting all your workforce to home. And so I think a lot of the basics, the foundations, the networks, the security, the product, all those things were very much around. It was everything that was, you know, patch up the holes was a bit, um, I think, secondary to just continue to grab as much as you possibly can. And so now you find yourself in a scenario where it's different. We're seeing our employees either come back home. We're seeing a lot of the extra employees that we hired no longer being employees. You know, we're, we're trying to understand what is, how do we shore up our balance sheet? And I think what's interesting, if we take the first step and say, well, if I'm not going to grow as rapidly and know there's implications to that, it is a chance for you to, like you said, retrench and to be able to think about how do we make the foundational investments in the next step of our growth? Now, we'll get to how you pay for that because that's a different question. But what I do think there's an opportunity even from 
you know, assessing your elements, working through how do you repurpose some of your team into working those things? How do you find vendors that can help you through that? But uh, it's a little bit of an understanding that you can actually slow down and build to build the base to be able to move fast again in the future. And then how do you pay for that? How do you work through that? I mean, that's, this is uh, as long as there have been technology investments and there's been CIOs, CFOs, and COOs, the questions around what is the return on that? I think you, a savvy technologist is going to position the investments on some of these themes, not as tech debt, not as, you know, patching the vulnerabilities that might be what you use to get a little bit sensational motivation, but it's going to be really around always tying it back to where you're trying to go next. Where is it going to work through that? How do the things you make today are going to help you propel the next growth? You know, why we should make these improvements in our infrastructure security today to allow us to not be distracted in the next season of growth. You know, there's a lot of different reasons why to do that. I think if you grew through acquisition, it's an opportunity for you to go back and look and say, how do we actually shore that up? Because I think I get more concerned. Again, Jason's probably a bit more in your world than mine, but I get concerned about just when you piece a bunch of different technology and companies and locations together, there just has to automatically be vulnerabilities in there that you're not aware of. And so how do you use this time to go do that and look at it holistically from what your strategy is to what you think your future is going to be. And then you start building your tech and your products and everything else around that. Yeah, that's a really interesting approach. And, you know, I think you, you sort of nailed it on the head, which is that historically with technology leaders, they'd try and find some, well, we can spend some time now shoring up some of our tech debt so that we can move faster in the future. And that's a big part of what you always suggest, Jason, is really how do you, people who spend energy paying down that tech debt can actually move faster in the future. But I think the lingering or, or vexing challenge is how do you price cybersecurity? Said differently, you know, board members are interested in risk and opportunities and investments, but what is the return on an investment in cybersecurity? It, you know, in the, if we take that car, car insurance analogy, you know, what car insurance is a pure cost until you have uh, some collision. And then it ends up savings, but are you guaranteed to have a collision? Well, no, of course not. And so this becomes the question of like, how do you actually quantify the potential risk? And we know that humans are, you know, notoriously bad at quantifying risk in general. And I think it's compounded by the fact that there's real moral hazard in, in the in the sort of technical sense of that phrase, which is that I as an executive have two choices. Even if I understood the risk, I could say, well, I'm not going to use that money to pay it down. I'm going to use it to go get some new features. And if that feature goes great, then I get a promotion or I get a raise or I get a bonus. If it goes great and nothing happens, that is. If it goes great and then we have a we have some breach because I didn't prioritize the cybersecurity elements, well, I might lose my job, but the probability of that is much lower than the probability of not having a, a breach in that case. And so from that perspective, there's this hazard where, you know, selfishly, I should prioritize not doing these things because in the short term and in a probabilistic sense, it'll work out to my benefit more often than not. So I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you, how do you quantify the cost and how do you sort of solve for this moral hazard that might exist? <laughs> I was going to, I think this is, this, this, this episode is all about deflection and moving slightly to the shift on the question. But uh, one thing that's interesting to me, I don't, uh, how do you quantify the cost? I don't know how that, you know, there's actuary scientists, there's uh, things they have to work through that I'm being somewhat silly when I say that. But to me, it sparks a different, slightly different thread that gets to what you're asking, Vincent. And it's a bit of interesting, this is a, a part of our time that it may even be worth a, a deeper discussion at a future date, but it just goes back to, is profit bad? You know, what is the purpose of a corporation? So if you think about some of the things that are happening today, you know, you have 
companies that are having huge earnings, particularly in the energy space, right? Because they've been incentivized not to invest and therefore they have been huge profits, which then puts them on every single naughty list. You have, you know, in January, there's been multiple states that have enacted legislation where it says, so if you buy back your own stock, you get taxed on that, right? Again, I mean, to me, my views fundamentally misunderstand the purpose of what that is, but that is the popular idea of that. And so if you start to have, if you're now a board and you're worse, worried about risk and you're worried about profits, well, that seems like there might be an opportunity to where you can actually do some things where you potentially, you need to reinvest that money. And I'm saying things that have, takes my Chicago education and makes me want to curl. But, uh, but like, it, yeah, I think there's a little bit of element of you could say back, let's take that instead of just actually returning that to shareholders or using that to do these things, we could actually help protect our organization we can reinvest those back in into projects that wouldn't have had the ROI in a pure drive top line or bottom line might be in the right uh, environment today in terms of the analysis of what it could be the macro risk of what happens if you have large scale you know, breach security elements of that you know just think about do we companies actually think the training you take about phishing and spamming actually is going to stop you from doing that i mean how many texts did you get today from fake elements just daring you to be sleepy enough to hit the link right i mean that's that only expands and so they're we're doing that because of the security uh, potential security reductions in the, in the cost of insurance to protect us from that and so it is an interesting element though if you go back and tie how you can reduce some of those elements and spend that money today on building things that would have never before been a profitable venture. Milton Freeman is turning over in his grave, right? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> kidding. I know Kevin was probably joking about the actuarial science thing, but I think that it is part of it, right? I mean, what is the risk? You know, go look at the, the Verizon had a great report they put out every year called the data breach investigation report. It will show like, what the average cost of, of remediating, you know, by industry, by size of company, uh, a security event is. And it's, it's, it's mildly terrifying, I think, you know, for companies to look at this. And the other thing is lost revenue. If you think, if you're a quick serve restaurant and you think about, we get 30, 40% of our orders through, you know, the mobile app digital channel. Well, what is two days of that being offline? Right, just to due to some attack due to your revenue, right? And so, I do I do think there are ways to show you know potential impact. Now, to your point though, Vincent, it is all potential loss, right? It's just like it's like knowing I know that I know what my truck is, you know what I still owe on my truck, and if uh, if I'm in a wreck, I know I'm going to be out of that money, but I don't like paying the insurance every month, and so it is. You know, I think it is hard. I, I, I like the idea, of Kevin, of thinking of it as reinvesting into the future growth. I mean, I, I do think the, you know, to continue your analogies of we're, we were so focused on hyper growth, we, we allowed some holes in the boat and it didn't really matter. Well, now, you know, I think it's time to patch some of those holes. Yeah, I think the only the only nuance I, so I agree with you that all makes sense. The only nuance I might add though that's a little counter and maybe in some different places to the insurance point, like yes, it's like I have to I don't want to pay for my insurance now, I'm just gonna risk it. But in this case it's you know, it's actually more like you're driving your dad's car or a friend's car and you don't want to pay for the insurance. Your dad says, Hey, I'll give you this car, you can use it, but you have to pay for the insurance and you're like, Yeah, sure, I'll do that. And then you get in a wreck, you know, you can kind of just walk away. And that's really the case for not the organization as a whole, but for the individuals leading the organization. They can kind of just walk away and get a job somewhere else later on. 
will there be some cost there? Yeah, potentially some harm, a little bit of risk, but it's very minimal compared to the upside of like kind of skipping it, not doing all the things you need to do. And and uh, I think that's that's the only nuance I'd add there. So I'm not, I don't know. Maybe no, I think that I, that's a really valid point. And I, uh, I think that's correct. I think that's why it's going to have to come, you know, more from the top down, right? In terms of like having senior leaders, executives putting that in the different departments, OKRs or MBOs or what, whatever they use to, to manage them. I, I think that will have to but happen or, or, or it won't. That's the, that's the problem though is like what you go all the way to the top, they have the same incentive. So, so it'd probably have to come from either regulatory effects of you must do this from insurance or insurance providers saying, we want to see all these things happen or, you know, potentially a board. But even then I think that might be a little tricky. I don't know. I don't know. I think if you go all the way to the top, I mean that that they're probably incentivized on stock price and. Uh, well, that that's exactly that's the whole point. Is like with shareholder primacy, what board members and CEOs often optimize for quarterly profits, and I'm not going to invest in something that might affect quarterly profits. Never, you know. It certainly will have some. Or it might, but the the challenge is, it might be tomorrow. Well, I I agree, but again, like this this is about the, of the moral hazard. Like if it happens tomorrow to me. And I get all my bonuses up till now because I've prioritized that. Well, that calculus might work out such that, in fact, that was the right choice for me selfishly in the short term. Really bad for the organization long term, but in the short term, that might be the right choice. I don't know. Well, another thing that's kind of interesting around, well, what is the organization? You think about going back to your car wreck example, and I'm thinking now thinking about a Tesla and Tesla gets in a wreck. I mean, all the values in the, is in the electronics and the batteries, right? So it's cheaper to throw away the shell than it, and take out the batteries and go to the next one than it is to actually fix the shell. We'll take that same analogy in companies. What if you end up seeing a lot more companies, a lot more elements to kind of try to protect themselves to where you're just throwing away the husk of something and you're moving the IP to something else? And so it's a really interesting season where we're at. I mean, just even going back, talking about shareholder value, I want to believe that shareholder value still matters. I want to believe that executives are still motivated towards doing what's best in that. I mean, ESG, is that for that? Is it not? I mean, what's the real driver? I mean, I think this really gets even back to regulatory. Is regulatory a friend or a foe? Yeah, I don't really don't know how this plays out. And I think it's going to be really interesting because we're kind of, we're in this interesting season of macroeconomics. We're interesting season of what expectations, what is normalized. Um, I don't think we quite know what it is. You have a season where based on technology and other elements that you have the, the amount of potential attack vulnerability, whatever you want to call it is greater than any time that I've ever been aware of. And maybe ignorance was bliss before and it's not so much now. So, you know, we were joking before, not so much in this episode, but previously around mad and going back to the cold war and around what that is. And, you know, is that where this goes to where, I mean, all your data is at risk and how do you do it then? How do you work through that? And is that even effective, which I don't think it is, but you can understand where you may go that route. Uh, so I, a little bit of a, a nonsensical ramble, but I think it does speak to the confusion that's now happening within uh, the C-suites of how you wrestle through this. And uh, for some, you know, the golf course might be looking a little bit more interesting. Uh, but I think for for many of us, you're going to have to find ways to be nimble through this and go back to the premise of today's episode, which is, you know, how do you think about risk? How do you think about investments? I mean, I think that in many ways, they've always had to ask these questions. Today, it's just, it's probably in different areas. Um, 
I think it's going to be increasingly more technical risk, potentially less human capital risk. You know, you think about how we play through that. And I think we have to continue to work with our clients and our companies on really how do you understand what's most important. And, you know, it's possible that a more steady growth and a little bit more of a less swings up and down is going to allow us to make more of these choices in the short run that are just more, you know, not as sexy per se, but are the things we need to do to continue to help grow and maintain long-term viability. I do think we're talking about this in a very general way. And a lot of these are very abstract arguments that, you know, could go either way. That's one of the reasons I really push companies to do sort of, you know, a scan assessment, you know, whatever it is to determine like what the risks are and what systems and, and, you know, therefore revenue or reputation or anything else, you know, data might be at risk. Because it's it's one thing to talk about these things in the abstract. It's another to look at the actual data and risk and see what that is and then understand the cost to fix it, right? And really make a, an, an informed decision. That, that's where I think people are not doing is making that kind of data, you know, uh, informed decision. Well, let me ask you this, Jason. Have you ever done an assessment and then uncovered potential risks that didn't get prioritized? Or you wouldn't recommend prioritizing Oh yeah, sure. I mean, absolutely. You know, um, so there, so, so the point that you're making here is that it's worth doing the assessment. It's worth actually doing sort of a cost benefit analysis. And some, some of the times you will find things that you just aren't worth prioritizing. Other times you will find things that are worth prioritizing that you ought to do. Is that right? Yeah. Or that, the you know, they're worth prioritizing, but the cost of them is prohibitive, right? That, you know, it would cost more to fix than, you know, you would, uh, potentially circumvent if there were an issue. Got it. Fair enough. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to go to one that's in a similar vein, but a little bit more mature, and we can see how this has played out to a certain degree. I want to talk about GDPR, or or as I'm going to position it today, as sort of the Privacy Bill of Rights, for data at least. And so, you know, 2018, GDPR was enacted. It did an amazing job of effectively defining and articulating a variety of rights that citizens of the EU had. So for example, you can you have the right to see your data, you have the right to correct your data, you have the right to delete your data, restrict it, or object to specific uses of it, and so on and so forth. And you can even tell people they couldn't have data, right, about things about your sex or health or religion or political identity and all the psychographics associated with it, et cetera. It's been, I think, remarkably effective in articulation I'm curious, though, how, is this even the right way to go? <laughs> and that sounds funny, but let me give you some reasons to why it, it may not have gone the way that I thought it would go, frankly. So while it led to more transparency, the the actual processing time on any of these things is extraordinarily long. So, for example, the Irish Data Protection Commission, which is the, which is the group, by the way, that handles most GDPR complaints against big tech, they have um, you know assessed lots of fines, you know, nearly 2.8 billion euros so far against big tech. So you're like, well, that's really working great. On the other hand, most of them have not actually been addressed. They have a backlog of more than 300 uh, outstanding complaints at the end of 2021. And many of them date back to 2018. So these are, these are, these are complaints filed basically as soon as the law was enacted and we still have not processed many of them. The fact that they've assessed more than $2.8 billion more recently, you know, in the past year, effectively, is promising, except we haven't really seen a change of behavior. (laughs) 
And so the fines seem to be so far, at least so small that, you know, when you do the cost benefit analysis, effectively as we're sharing with cybersecurity, most organizations have decided just not to comply, not to spend the energy or the money to go after solving it because the, the fines associated with it, to your point, Jason, are smaller than the cost associated with actually fixing it. So my question to you guys is like, is, is this even the right direction or have we, have we sort of taken a head, fed, head fake here and we're headed in the wrong direction? Well, let me answer that by saying that I wouldn't characterize the fines as, as small and inconsequential, right? I think the GDPR fines could be up to 4% of global revenue. Right, and that's not just for the business. No, it's not just the business that's done in the EU. It's it's corporations globally, um, and so I think those fines are very consequential. I think that what has happened is that it has taken so long for those that backlog to get processed uh, that people have just been. You know, it's like you get a ticket and you don't have to pay for it for four years, right? Like, well, I'm just going to keep speeding, and. Now that they are really starting to, to crack down on some of these things, you know, you see some of the like the recent fines that Google and, and others have had, particularly in, in the in the EU, you know, I think that it is going to drive a lot more uh, focus on them because I, I do think that they are, are substantial. And there are other legislations that are, you know, in the US, for example, you know, CCPA and others that are um that are being enacted. And I think that the real challenge is the the kind of patchwork set of frameworks that may apply to anyone given their location, right? So do, do you get hit by the, you know, in the U.S., most of those uh, are very state by state, right? So do you get hit with GDPR and CCPA and some other privacy legislation? You know, there's a there's a great apocryphal story that uh, you know about a bakery in in, in California where the, the federal regulators, or maybe it was the state regulators, said that the door to the bakery has to open out, and so they changed the door, and then the the city regulator came in and said the door has to open in, right? And so it's like, well, what do we do? And and I think you're going to get into that where a lot of the you know patchwork quilt of regulations that apply to anyone are going to maybe be very hard to comply with. But I, I, I do think people will, will focus on those more local ones because the local, you know, uh, entities are getting very aggressive about going after people because they view it as a, a revenue source. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. It's up to 4% or $20 million, whichever is greater. And yet when I look at the largest fine today, it's Amazon at 746 million euros, which is about, you know, 900 million, a little less. Uh, of U.S. dollars, and I look at their annual revenue for 2022, I see 513 billion dollars. So the biggest fine to date, you know, is one tenth of one percent of the total revenue, not two percent. And so again, like maybe it needs to be a bigger stick or a bigger, you know, in, in fine imposed to change the calculus. But so far, again, like it seems like when you do this calculus, you know. 746 minutes is a lot. It's a lot of money, but not really, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's a lot of things to unpack here, you know, small guys versus big companies versus David Goliath governments. You think about the big players and the big fines and actually one step even before I go to that is that I think there's also seasonality. I mean, all these David of privacy elements were happening before two things occurred. One was COVID 
And now is the, the impact of global recession potential coming out of COVID. So it's possible that a lot of the data privacy security elements that we saw, you know, four or five years ago, that's because I think times were good. So what do you do when times are good? You find a way to do something, make something up. Well, you know, now you're starting to play through that in terms of, I think, reason why companies and other ones haven't probably cared about it quite as much. Even for us, we were doing quite a bit of work in GDPR and CCPA uh, but prior to COVID. Now, is that related to each other? Who knows? But that's, part, that's something to look at that. But when it goes back to your finds, and this is where I would link what you just said, Vincent, to what Jason said, I do think the risk also is at the smaller companies and it's the smaller locations because there's a little bit of chicken that goes on. So you're the EU and you want to sue Amazon or Google for an astronomical amount to where it's actually painful. Well, don't you kind of want Google or Amazon to say, that's fine, France. We're just going to close up shop and we're not going to be in prime. No more prime in Paris. No more this, you know. And again, that may sound silly and fantastical that would happen, but there is an element of where they can't find them too much. They have to find them just enough that it's better for them just to pay for it than it is for them to actually say, we're going to do something else that's going to be painful for you. Main Street can't says that, whether it's the, the local government, state, or anything else. And so it's the same thing you see with legal contracts. I mean, you know, the bigger your power you have in a legal contract, it's not about what you wrote. You've got smarter lawyers. It's just simply you can bury them in so much bureaucracy and red tape that you're going to bleed them dry in terms of what it's going to cost to defend it. And that's where I think is interesting around what happens. Is. So then you go, well, who's sponsoring these elements? And this is where it starts to get a little even more conspiratory. You know, are the big companies, do they want this to happen? Because they know they can protect it. They know they're going to have the ability to control, either be from a, local, a legal perspective, a political influence perspective, or just a size. And so I think what is going to be interesting, are we really seeing that the small organizations are the ones that are going to bear the most of the cost because they can't protect themselves? And ultimately, you're going to decide, do you? is it worth it? And then... One last conspiratory thing for a Friday afternoon is you think about the attack on, on wealth and on taxes. And so here's the part where really from a strategist, it really concerns me. Where does innovation come from? And what's going to be the incentive for the small company to take the risk? If you know that your upside is going to be potentially significantly taxed, you know that you're going to have regulatory or larger environments that are going to kind of force the innovation to be go into one of the bigger companies. Um, why do you do it? Why do you take that risk? What's what's the love of the game, love of discovery, love of that versus is it really worth the return on my time and investment? And I think that part is where we're starting to teeter, that you start to see that the individual elements that created what happened in Silicon Valley in the late teen, 1990s, you know, how that played out. Well, what if that environment doesn't happen again? Because all the companies today that have all the control all started from ideas that today would be that much more difficult to even ever get off the ground. Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting point. And I really like this idea of this of, of this sort of asymmetry of the problem for big and small companies, right? Which is which is that again, it's twenty million dollars or or four percent of global revenue, whichever's greater. Meaning that it could be it could be a hundred and fifty percent, five hundred percent of what you make you get a twenty million dollar fine. So so it destroys your company. Yeah. I, versus even even if it were four percent, like it's still not it's it's a big number, but it's not that big. And so to your point, who's investing in lobbyists? Who's investing in sort of creating these regulatory environments? And who actually can afford to fight these things? And if you're a mom and pop shop and you get slapped with a twenty million dollar fine, do you even have the capacity to then hire attorneys to fight with some regulatory body of the federal government. Um, that's a really difficult proposition for sure. See, Vincent, I think that the challenge is not 
it's not big tech because Kevin, I, I think you're right. That's a big game of chicken because again, they're governments for all intents and purposes, government size, and it's not mom and pops, right? It's the regional airline where four percent of revenue is maybe the difference between them being profitable this year or not, right? And, and so it's it's those you know mid-sized enterprises where you know that you know maybe work on lower margins that are ex- at extreme risk because they have enough data to be a big target of a of a hacker or a government or a local entity going after you know privacy violations and they have are probably small enough you know that they have been you know scrappy in, in their development of their systems and and maybe not invested you know enough around security or data privacy protection um, and so and those fines or the impact of a, a breach, right, are super material, are going to be super material to their business. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. So, again, if you're a huge tech, you don't really care, which is too bad because that's where all the data live, really. If you're a small mom and pop, you're just done. So, again, you don't really care. It's really, it's that really in the middle there that that have have the most concern is your point and that that makes a lot of sense and you know i would say well let me ask let me not actually say let me ask you then so jason like from your perspective you're talking to mid-market firms what what should they do on the security and, and on the data privacy stuff is it just do this assessment thing for data privacy the same do they take a different approach do they prioritize it then kevin differently you know large enterprise fine you know like yeah you should care hire a person i guess and let them kind of toil away but in that mid-market in particular, does it get a different sort of risk profile? Yeah, it's really the cost-benefit analysis kind of, you know, us, you know, get in, look at it, do scans, do an assessment, understand what understand what your risks are and, and what it's going to take to address them. You can make an informed-based decision versus right now, I think most of them are in, in kind of a see-no-evil-hear-no-evil mode. And I don't know that that's the best place to be. What, how, just give me a sense, Jason, like when we do these assessments, typically like, you know, or it doesn't be us specifically, but just people in general, are we, are we talking like this is a multi-year process? Is this like a couple week thing? Like help me understand what's the, what's sort of the effort from, from the, you know, executive's perspective. And it's like, you know, eight to 10 weeks, you know, it's, it's not a huge investment. Got it. So for a reasonably small amount of time effort, you can get at least a profile then of, of where you really stand from a risk perspective. And, and then again, back to you, Kevin, then as as we then think about how to interpret those results, prioritization, it's obviously business by business, but it sounds like those mid-market, this stuff would impact, impact them differently than either side of that. And, and that needs to be considered too. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, it, when we start to listen, when I'm listening through, you'll both talk about this. It's potential that it really goes around how, well, how do you grow and how do you potentially scale? And so if you're in this space, you may, your growth curve might be slightly lower or, you know, not in the steep because you're going to have to be making these investments and how you work through that. You also might make a strategy that uh, you want to stay underneath the radar a little bit too. And that would be another approach to it. Uh, you're probably also using vendors to help with this more, which helps shield some of the liability because you're passing it down. You're, you're, yeah, so there's different strategies to approach it. Um, I think probably also knowing when to have it in-house versus when not is a, probably a pretty interesting thing to work through that. But uh, so not I'm a interested. lot, not, not an easy answer, but it's going to, every position is going to be slightly different, of course. But uh, it is interesting to think. I also, 
you know, one thing we haven't talked about today, but it goes back to the, uh, the this was my door open one way or closed the other way. I think you're also see it matters where you go and where you locate. I mean, I think you're going to increasingly see companies and organizations try to put themselves in spots where they're going to feel perceived protection for whatever reason that is for them. So, yeah, I, I think the other thing is, you know, back to that talent acquisition thing, you know, these, of course, security, cybersecurity people are very hard to come by. Same with data people. They're very hard to come by. And so that that strategic hire becomes really important, whether it be internal or external too. any closing thoughts from you, Jason. I, I I did I had not thought about your your second point there, Kevin, around you know impact to innovation and you know do do we make the general business environment you know so stifling that it it uh, it stops some of the the interesting innovations? That's probably you know we probably don't have time to get into that, but uh, maybe we can talk about that in a future one because I. I I think that's an interesting topic to dig into. All right. We'll make note of that. Again, thank you both for joining me today. I really appreciate it. For those of you who would like to learn more, please visit the Insights page at Cordero.com, or you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us again.